This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Rick Doblin. Rick is the founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, known as MAPS. He received his doctorate in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where he wrote his dissertation on the regulation of the medical uses of psychedelics and marijuana. His professional goal is to help develop legal contexts for the beneficial uses of psychedelics, primarily as prescription medicines, but also for personal growth for otherwise healthy people, and eventually to become a legally licensed psychedelic therapist. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Rick and I spoke about Rick's lifelong relationship with the drugs that he studies at MAPS and how he stresses that it's the personal relationship that you have with the drug that matters most. Who feels it, knows it. We talked about how MDMA-assisted therapy, now in its third set of clinical trials, has been proven to help many people who have PTSD and the mechanism of action for MDMA when it comes to healing trauma. We talked about Rick's development of the Zendo Project and how the project creates a safe place to support people when navigating difficult experiences while on psychedelics. And finally, we talked about Rick's desire for a coming out party of people of influence who will stand up and claim that psychedelics have been an important part of their life and how this coming out can help catalyze social transformation. Here's my conversation with Dr. Rick Doblin. Rick, in becoming familiar with you and the work of MAPS, <laughs> the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, it became very clear to me that you are a person on a mission. Can you mm. summarize for our listeners what your mission is with MAPS? Um, I would say it's metabolizing fear uh, into um, appreciation. Uh, by that, I mean the mission is to avoid another Holocaust, to avoid another uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, destruction of the world through nuclear weapons, and to avoid um, what I experienced when I was a young man um, facing the lottery for Vietnam. You know, the, the dehumanization of the other, the um, a lot of what we see today, the rise of fundamentalism. But the, the mission is to balance out the 
over, uh, I would not over exaggerated, but we, we are way more advanced as human species intellectually than we are emotionally and spiritually. And therefore we're destroying the world and we have the weaponry to destroy, uh, humanity. And also, uh, we're destroying the environment. And so what we need to do is accelerate our emotional and spiritual development to cope with the products of our intellect. And that's what I recognized mm-hmm. when I was an 18 year old boy in, you know, 1971 and 72, that I was way more developed intellectually and way underdeveloped emotionally and spiritually. And I felt that psychedelics could play a major role in helping me to grow. And when I looked out at the world, um, I thought that it could play a major role in helping in many, many different ways. And the fact that they were suppressed um, was a clue to me of their value, ironically. And so at age 18 in 1972, um, I decided to focus my life on psychedelics and trying to bring them back as therapeutic tools, spiritual tools. And also I looked upon the war on drugs as a massive, massive violation of human rights as a tool to suppress minorities and as one of the worst policies with the most um, destructive consequences that we as a species have adopted. Well, first of all, I thought you were going to say something like that your mission was the widespread cultural adoption of psychedelic use in the culture, something like that. So it's interesting to me that you gave a much grander and more sort of deeply rooted mission, metabolizing fear into appreciation. That's interesting. Yeah, because the psychedelics are really just a tool. They're not the end in themselves. And in fact, the word psychedelic means mind manifesting. And the way we interpret that word, that doesn't have to be just drugs. I mean, holotropic breathwork developed by Stan Groff you know, the early um, LSD researchers. So hyperventilation to bring out emotions. Or uh, there's a lot of things that are psychedelic that don't involve taking a drug. The the psychedelics are just a tool to bring forth the manifest, the mind, and deeper emotions. And that's what it's really about. So I, I think that what we've done as a culture is we've focused on the substance, you know, the drugs. And there's certain drugs that are good drugs and certain drugs that are evil drugs or bad drugs. And or dangerous drugs, and we criminalize certain drugs and have others legal. And what we've lost by doing that and that simplistic kind of thinking is that what really matters is the relationship you have with the drug or with anything else. It's the relationship that counts. It's what you do with it in what context and with whom. So the best example for me from the FDA point of view is the drug thalidomide. And so I'm sh- I imagine that many of the listeners will know that thalidomide was a drug that was used in women for morning sickness. Uh, in Europe, it was approved. It never quite got approved in the U.S. This was in the late 50s, early 60s. And it caused terrible birth defects. And on the basis of all of that fear of these birth defects, um, the one person at the FDA that has won the Presidential Medal of Honor was this woman, Frances Kelsey, and she was the one that blocked thalidomide from becoming a medicine in the U.S. and saved who knows how many um, women from having deformed babies. 
Um, but years and years later, thalidomide is now a medicine for uh, leprosy and certain kinds of cancer because it chokes off um, blood vessels. And so in, in ways which that can be actually helpful. So we've got the quintessential bad drug used in a certain way that decades later became used in a different way. And now it's a, an FDA approved medicine. So it's really about the relationship that we have with the drugs. And that's why I think when you ask me my mission, it's about what the drugs can do rather than about the drugs themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, it's very interesting that you said it's about the relationship that we have with these drugs. So I'd be curious from a personal standpoint, the drugs that you work with and study the most at MAPS, what's your relationship with each one of those? How would you describe it as if you were describing a relationship with a person or with an organization, something <laughs> like that? Well, I would describe it, first off, as a sense of immense gratitude that these drugs have helped me to do things, to feel things, to know things. Um, Rita Marley has a great uh, album title about Marley's wife, widow. Um, it was called Who Feels It Knows It. And so I feel that these drugs have helped me. First off, LSD, um, I'm grateful for LSD for helping me to feel at all. I mean, I just was very much um, in my head, and I think that was a good thing because it really helped me to think through um, how to respond to a murderous culture and humans that are, you know, still partly uh, or maybe even sometimes mostly uh, you know, predators from the jungle rather than, you know, enlightened human beings. But LSD helped me to feel emotions. And so I'm very much grateful for that. And then also there's a a relationship. If I were on a deserted island and I could only have uh, one drug, uh, it would be LSD. And the reason for that is that with LSD, um, you have to, you know, the key to doing LSD is surrender. It's, It's difficult to negotiate with LSD. Stuff comes up from the unconscious and you decide, hey, you know, that's a little bit too much for me. I'm going to um, pay attention to that later. And it, it doesn't quite work that way. Um, but it helps you see things that your your defenses might block from you that you might not otherwise see. It brings you to the the new or the truths that you're not quite ready for or, or you don't think you're ready for, not quite willing. Whereas with MDMA, um, I guess I'm grateful for MDMA for love. Um, MDMA is just so beautiful of a slight, it's so subtle, um, how it's different than normal consciousness, but it's, um, a very subtle shift with a reduction in fear and openness of the heart, deep self-acceptance and better listening, uh, feelings of love and connection. So I, I guess the other way to say this is that, um, I, I imagine that my relationship is lifelong relationship with these drugs. They're not one night stands in other ways that these drugs, th- there's a sort of story that Ramdas, um, Richard Alpert, who was with Leary at Harvard talks about it. And he's, he's saying, you know, when you've got the message, hang up the phone, you know, like this was a justification for people who were 
um, had done psychedelics and now we're looking at meditation, you know, so they got the message. There's a deeper way of processing and thinking there's a spiritual world. And now let's, um, you know, meditate and try to integrate and anchor this in our daily life. And I think that's very, very crucial, but I think it misses the point that we all know that every time you pick up the phone, it's not the same message. It's a different person calling or you're a different person because it's a different stage of your life. So I think what I've found is now that I'm almost 65 and started doing psychedelics at 17, that there's, it's a lifelong relationship and different things that are of value to me at different stages of my life. And psychedelics have been important throughout it. You know, there's a whole host of other drugs that I can talk about. Some of the drugs Ibogaine, for example, um, I've only tried one time. Ibogaine is a psychedelic drug um, used in religious services, religious rituals in Western Africa, but it has the remarkable property of helping people through opiate addiction, through the withdrawal process. And then it also can spiritualize people. And I've only done it once in my life, but in 1985. So you know, more than uh, about 33 years ago. And yet that was one of the most important psychedelic experiences of my whole life. It was really grueling. It was 12 hours of vomiting and agony, but it was showing me the punitive nature of uh, perfectionism and the way in which uh, self-hatred and, and perfectionism can go together. And yet the way in which we need that um, constant inner critic to help us uh, learn and grow, we just need to separate it out from the self-hatred. So I was, um, I learned that to the extent that I've learned that through my Ibogaine experience, but that was only a one-time experience and it was so grueling. It took me four days before, afterwards before I could even trust myself to drive. The next day I couldn't even sit up. Uh, third day somebody had to pick me up, but you know, that, that's a one-time thing. And maybe one day I'll do, um, I began again, um, but I haven't yet. So some of these drugs I have um, limited experience with, but it carries me through my life. So I, I think it's, uh, I would say it's a healthy relationship, but I have healthy lifelong relationships that are um, different drugs at different times for different purposes. Now, Rick, there's so much to talk about here, but I want to bring forward a concern right at the beginning of our conversation. A couple of Sounds True authors have said to me, you know, Tammy, I'm nervous about how people are starting to use psychedelics, whether it's in personal healing or the spiritual journey, that there's this new floodgate opening now in our time where people are traveling down to South America for their ayahuasca journeys, et cetera. And I'm seeing, this is sounds true authors, two different ones reporting this to me, people coming into my clinical practice with some real problems, with some real unintegratable material, some split off parts of themselves that they can't make peace with. One person even reported that one of her clients had committed suicide. And these authors said to me, Tammy, be careful. People trust you. Be careful as you step into the territory of talking about psychedelics and healing and the spiritual journey that you don't lead people astray. So I want to start right there, Rick. How can you help our listeners be responsible 
in their relationships? And how can we make sure that we're not creating harm here, even in this conversation? Hmm. Well, um, first off, I think that um, the experience itself is only a part of the healing process. And when we talk about work with psychedelics, we use the word MDMA-assisted psychotherapy or LSD or psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. And people tend to focus on the experience, on the integration. I, I would um, question a little bit the way you phrased for of unintegratable content. And so I, I would say that people can integrate what happens in a psychedelic experience, but they need a lot of support both during the experience and for weeks, months, sometimes even years afterwards. Even Albert Hoffman, who invented LSD, talked about taking um, a major dose of LSD once a decade, and then it would take him a decade to integrate what had happened before. So I think the concern is that certain of these experiences are not readily legally available in the U.S. So people go down to South America, as you say, and they have experiences with ayahuasca or even Ibogaine in Africa, or they have these experiences in a different cultural context. They're away for a week or so, two weeks, then they come back to their normal environment and everything's different. Um, and they don't spend enough time on integrating. And the people that they had the experiences with are thousands of miles away. And we're actually starting um, a list called Psychedelic Integration List on our website, on the maps.org website, of therapists that are open to working with people to help them integrate experiences with psychedelics that they had, either in the U.S. or abroad, that they don't have therapists here to talk to about it. So I think your concern that you expressed, that these um, authors expressed, is, is quite right. And that you, you need to think of it as part of a process where you have this experience, but you also have to do a lot of preparation for it. And then you also have to do a lot of integration. Um, I think the sad part is that there is no way that we can say we're not going to cause any harm with this conversation. Because if we were able to say to people, you're suffering right now, or you want to learn right now, there's no ideal legal context in the U.S. for this. So either you're going to go underground, and there's thousands, hundreds, um, probably thousands of uh, underground psychedelic therapists willing to work with these drugs, but they have a riskier context, or you have to go abroad, and that there are things that are less than ideal about that. You, you ideally want to be in your normal life and you go for you know, therapy and then you've got somebody right nearby to talk to them about integration. And so while we have the system of prohibition that we have and we're trying to gradually undo it, that's going to take multiple decades more. And so there always is going to be now a certain level of risk unless somebody gets lucky enough to be in one of the studies I mean, we're moving into phase three studies for PTSD with MDMA. Um, other groups are going to be working with psilocybin for depression. And so there will be contexts for a limited number of people. But we're just talking about hundreds, not thousands of people. And, you know, there, there's millions of people with PTSD in the U.S. And a lot of them have exhausted the available therapies and medicines that have not worked for them. 
Um, just to give you an example of how profound that problem is, um, two years ago, June 30th, 2016, there was 868,000 veterans receiving disability payments from the VA for PTSD and almost 600,000 more receiving disability payments for uh, anxiety, depression, and other mental health disorders at a cost to the VA of roughly $30 billion every year. And so that's just war-related PTSD. There's more people with PTSD from sexual abuse, from accidents, from operations, from uh, you know, abusive parents, single assaults, all, all sorts of things. So there's an enormous number of people who need help who have not been able to get the help that they need from what's available. Although many people have found relief from the currently available therapies and from the currently available SSRIs that, that has helped a bunch of people. But there's all sorts of people that are desperate and looking for solutions and the solutions are not easy to find in our cultural context under prohibition and people are willing to go to extremes and there's going to be some risk involved in that. And I think we have to acknowledge that. And I think the best thing to say to people is um, beware of the whole idea of one dose miracle cure. And I think that was one of the downfalls you could say of the sixties and that, you know, some of the advocates started saying, all you need to do is take LSD once and then you're enlightened and then you're somehow more advanced than everybody else. Um, and I think the one dose miracle cure idea is, is really dangerous because first off, it focuses on the drug. It doesn't focus on the preparation or the integration. And it also um, feeds the delusion that, um, you know, there's a, a very simple solution, you know, in a few hours. Now, occasionally some people will get cured after one session of MDMA, get cured of their PTSD, or people will get cured of their depression after one session of psilocybin or LSD, or people will be um, cured of addiction to opiates after one ibogaine session. Um, so, that can happen, but really, that's very rare. And I think what people need to prepare themselves for is um, a long journey of slow, incremental progress. And then I think they're, we're less likely to have these kind of situations. Now, the suicide that you talked about, the person that went and mm -hmm. had a psychedelic experience and committed suicide, um, you know, those are tragic Um we'd have to know a lot more about that situation. Had the person ever attempted suicide before, you know, was this their first suicide attempt or, you know, had they been dealing with lifelong depression and then they went and, you know, took ayahuasca and that brought things to the surface and they weren't prepared for that. And um, so we monitor people very carefully after the psychedelic experience. We, we have the experience takes place during the day from roughly 10 in the morning till six at night. And then we have people spend the night in the treatment center. And then there's more integrative psychotherapy the very next day. And then we monitor them several times over the next week before they come back in for another in-person session by phone calls to check in and see how they're doing. We, we help them realize that if they're struggling to integrate stuff, they can call at any time, day or night. They can even have another psychotherapy session extra that's not in the protocol. Um, to help them deal with things. So I, I think the risks are really there and it is important to acknowledge. And I, I would say, again, going back to the mistakes of the 60s, the government at the time was willing to exaggerate the risks 
I mean, they were even saying that you took LSD and you have chromosome damage and you're going to have deformed babies. Uh, they were willing to exaggerate the risks and then deny the benefits. And in the response, I would say Timothy Leary and others um, exaggerated the benefits and minimized the risks. And I think as we talk now, 50 years later, about how to integrate psychedelics into our culture, the thing that we most need to do is to be um, clear about the benefits and not exaggerate them and talk a lot about preparation and integration. And then also to be clear and honest uh, about the risks and not to minimize those. And if we can develop that sort of credibility and that sort of story that we're telling, I think we'll have a much better chance of succeeding 50 years later and successfully integrating psychedelics into our culture. Do you believe, Rick, that we're in the midst of a psychedelic renaissance the way some people have described this time that we're in right now? Do you see it that way? Yeah, I do. In fact, I think I was probably one of the first people to start talking about a psychedelic renaissance. Um, I, I, if you look at the amount of studies, there's more psychedelic research now than at any time in the last 50 years. Um, you know, I just got off a phone call earlier this morning from an oncologist who's working with his cancer patients and saying that they need um, more tools than they have in oncology to deal with existential distress for people facing death. Um, th there is so much interest right now in psychedelics that um, it's not an exaggeration to say that it's a renaissance in research. And even moving more and more into the traditional world. I mean, just to give you one example, um, in 1990 is when uh, we, MAPS, when we first approached the Veterans Administration about the use of MDMA for PTSD. And at the time, that was just Vietnam vets. And um, we had therapists and psychiatrists working inside a VA that wanted to do work with us. And the head of the VA at that time, the, the city VA, um, said no, refused. And ever since then, every few years, every five years or so, we try again with a different VA somewhere around the country. Always the people closest to the patients would say, yes, we want to explore this. And the political people would say no. Now that's uh, 28 years later. And um, the first person actually that said no to MDMA inside a Veterans Administration Center is now one of the um, um, chiefs of psychiatry at a, one of our phase three sites. And we're working with the National Center for PTSD at the VA. Uh, they've permitted some of their therapists to work with us uh, for us to fund them, to blend MDMA with their existing therapies. So I, I think there is a renaissance. I think the FDA is uh, the organization that deserves the most credit for that. So I think, yeah, the, the FDA... Actually, in 1992, um, had a meeting to discuss whether to open the door to psychedelic research. We, we had presented with them the FDA with a protocol for MDMA for cancer patients with anxiety. And in 1990, the group of people at the FDA that regulated psychedelics switched to a new group of people, and they were willing to put science first. And they approved a study by Rick Strassman with DMT. But that was kind of a negative study. He wanted to see if DMT uh, caused schizophrenia or could cause delusions. And 
you know, it's easier to get studies approved that are looking at risks or looking at negative things than looking at benefits. And so then we wanted to study MDMA for something positive, helping cancer patients address their anxiety. And the FDA had this um, advisory committee meeting. The National Institute on Drug Abuse had a two-day meeting before that of all of their animal researchers looking at psychedelics and animal models and asked them the question, would they be open to human research? And the uh, NIDA people, not known for their um, endorsement of positive uses of different states of consciousness, um, they said that their animal was becoming increasingly relevant because unless you could have human studies to correlate with the animal studies, you didn't know how to interpret the animal data. And so in 1992, FDA said, yes, we will open the door to psychedelic research and we will put science before politics, but the researchers are going to have to follow the exact same procedures that we would ask Big Pharma to follow for any new drug that they wanted to develop into a medicine. And our response was, great, all we want is a fair playing field. And since 1992, the field has been growing and FDA has been our main ally and not because they're pro-psychedelic, but just because they're pro-science. And so now we've reached a point where the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, is over to psychedelics. There's just um, a fantastic situation with, with more research now than at any time in, in the last 30 years, uh, 50 years, really. And so the, the other um, sign that it's a psychedelic renaissance is that we're actually doing research now that we never did 50 years ago. And that's what's called phase three. So phase three research is the final stage of research where you do large-scale, multi-site, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies. And the goal is to develop definitive proof of safety and efficacy in order to obtain approval for prescription use. And so we're moving forward into phase three for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, other groups are moving forward into phase three with psilocybin for depression. And in the 60s and 50s, there were no phase three studies. Those were all academic research projects trying to understand how these drugs worked or what they might do in patients. Those were called phase two studies in patients. But it never got to the point of these phase three studies to make these drugs into medicine. And that's where we're at right now. And we anticipate by 2021, that MDMA will be approved as a medicine for PTSD by the FDA and ideally by the European Medicines Agency as well, and, and with psilocybin. So we're, we're definitely um, well along into a psychedelic renaissance. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, for people who are hearing about MDMA, which is also known as ecstasy in common language, being used for PTSD for the very first time, they're like, really? How does that work? What's the mechanism of action, so to speak, hmm. on how 
MDMA helps heal people who have PTSD? Well, fortunately, uh, if you go to Medline right now, which is the PubMed, the, the world's repository of scientific literature, uh, medicine, there's over 5,000 papers there on MDMA. So we do know quite a lot about the mechanism of action. MAPS itself has not funded these studies because to make a drug into a medicine through the FDA, you need to prove safety and you need to prove efficacy, but you don't have to have a clue about mechanism of action. And a lot of the drugs that we have, we don't really know how they work anyway. Um, So before I explain mechanism of action, I just want to say that for those people that might be surprised to hear that ecstasy is being used as a therapeutic drug, um, from the middle 70s to the early 80s, the drug MDMA, under the code name Adam, was legally used in therapy. Um, it was similar to drugs that were illegal, so it was kept quiet for fear that it would be made illegal, but it was legal and it was used in therapy. And one of the people that used MDMA in a therapeutic context decided that uh, this drug should be available to more people, that it could be used in other contexts, that he could make a lot of money at it. And so Uh, he turned MDMA into ecstasy. And then ecstasy started getting used in bars in Texas, the Star Club and others, and then ecstasy attracted the attention of the DEA. And then in 1985, it was criminalized. So what we're really trying to do, I started MAPS in 1986, right after the criminalization of MDMA. We're trying to restore the therapeutic use of MDMA which was in existence before it became a party drug. But the mechanism of action question, um, so for PTSD, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, changes people's brains. What it does is it um, increases activity in the amygdala, which is the fear processing part of the brain, so that fearful memories are always not far from the surface. And there's all sorts of triggers and reminders that people have. And people... You know, to cope with it, they um, become emotionally numb or they become hyperreactive. And PTSD also changes the brain in terms of the prefrontal cortex, where we think logically, put things in association. It reduces activity in the prefrontal cortex with people with PTSD so that they're more emotionally, fearfully reactive and they're less logical about things. MDMA does exactly the opposite. MDMA reduces activity in the amygdala so that emotions that are fearful, that are linked to memories of trauma, once people can look at them, once they think about them, they can do it from a more peaceful place. And they can, in some ways, release the fears and anxieties that when the trauma happened, they had to suppress because they had to focus on survival. And yet, the fears to stay with them. MDMA also increases activity in the prefrontal cortex. So people are able to think more logically. You know, every person who uh, is in a red hat, that, uh, you know, they were attacked by somebody in a red hat. Every time they see a red hat, they get fearful. So in their prefrontal cortex, they're able to separate out that um, that's not always a signal of danger. MDMA also releases uh, hormones of oxytocin and prolactin which are the hormones of nursing mothers, of love. It it helps people feel connection and trust, and it helps build a therapeutic alliance. And then MDMA also increases um, connectivity 
between the hippocampus and the amygdala where emotions are uh, moved more into long-term storage, where the hippocampus is connected to memory. So that people are able to take these emotions that have been trapped, in a sense, in short-term memory because they're so fearful and are able to process them into long-term memories. And then MDMA also stimulates activity in serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine, which has a cascade of different effects, but also in some mysterious ways, we're not exactly sure how, contributes to this um, sort of like you tapped into a well into the unconscious and emotions emerge and thoughts and feelings emerge into awareness that have been suppressed. We, we find that under the influence of MDMA, people's memory for the trauma is enhanced, that they actually can recall a lot more of what happened to them from a position of safety and awareness that it's not happening right now. So all of those factors combine to create MDMA as the ideal drug for PTSD. And I should add that MDMA acts fundamentally differently than the classic psychedelic. So when you say mechanism of action for psilocybin or LSD or uh, mescaline from peyote or ayahuasca, um, what is being discovered through modern brain scan research is that there's kind of a resting state um, ego awareness. It's called the default mode network of the brain. It's the part of the brain that's kind of when you're scanning the horizon or just thinking about things, you've got no particular agenda. It's sort of uh, it's your ego, it's yourself, it's sort of looking at what you need from the world, who you are. Um, it's the anchor of, you know, us in time and space. And what the classic psychedelics do is they don't really do what I described with MDMA with the amygdala or the prefrontal cortex, but what they do is they reduce activity in the default mode network, which acts as a filter. And so the filter of incoming information to what's relevant to us in our human life from birth to death, what are our needs? That filter is weakened and we get flooded with all sorts of perceptions, including, you know, emotional material that we've tried not to see that we've suppressed, but that's highly charged. And so Stan Groff has talked about LSD as a non-specific amplifier of the unconscious. And that's a good way to understand how, modern neuroscience is looking at the effect of these psychedelics on the default mode network. MDMA is not so nonspecific in the sense that it's more filled with um, emotions of self-love, self-acceptance, of connection, of um, reduction of fear. So that's what we understand about mechanisms. And when it comes to the research results, how many times does someone need to have an MDMA-assisted session in general? What are you finding for the recovery from trauma to be lasting? Well, yes, thank you for asking that question, because a lot of people don't really understand the differences between classic SSRIs that or other antidepressants that you're supposed to take every day. But in our therapy model, people only take MDMA three times. And what we have is a three-and-a-half-month model where MDMA is taken once a month for three months. We actually say it's between three to five weeks apart, so it's not exactly one month. But it's um, three eight-hour day-long sessions of MDMA 
And there's 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions, three before the first MDMA session is preparation, and then three of these 90-minute sessions for integration after each MDMA session. And then two months after the last MDMA session is what's called the primary outcome measure, and that's where we compare the control group with the MDMA group, and we need to show statistically significant differences at that two-month point. We also look 12 months out just to see how durable it is, and we've also then looked at, um, in some studies, three and a half years out. And so basically what we've discovered through our phase two studies, and we'll see to what extent we can replicate this with phase three studies, but in our phase two studies with 107 PTSD patients who had, um, you know, MDMA uh, three times, early on we only gave it twice, but now we do it three times. Um, The placebo group of chronic severe treatment resistant PTSD, um, roughly, um, 22% 22% of them no longer had PTSD at this two-month follow-up, which is actually really good for, for therapies for chronic, severe treatment-resistant PTSD. But then when you add the MDMA, it gets up to um, 56%. So it more than doubles that people no longer have PTSD. And then when you add um, um, a third session, people are up to 61%, no longer have PTSD. But at the 12-month follow-up, it's two-thirds of the people no longer have PTSD. So what's happened is three sessions have started a healing process that people continue on their own. Now, what I'm talking to you about is averages. So there are non-responders. There are relapsers. Yeah. Um, it doesn't work for everybody. You know, Of the one-third that still has PTSD at 12 months, most of them have had um, reduction in symptoms, clinically significant reduction in symptoms, but they still have PTSD. But some of them it have not worked for. And those tend to be, what we're trying to understand is those people that have what's called um, high on dissociation scales. One of the classic uh, defenses when you're traumatized is to split off, to dissociate. And so the, the more that that has been sort of solidified in people's life as a coping style association, the harder it is to treat them, the more time they might take. Also, complex PTSD, uh, childhood sexual abuse, uh, parents that they couldn't really trust, those people are also harder to treat. And so what we're anticipating is that there will be this three-session model, and if that that will work for most people, but for those people that it doesn't work for, we would wait maybe six months or a year before administering any more MDMA because we want to see if we've started this natural healing process. And then for those people that relapse, usually what happens is that they have had some other traumatic incident happen in their life, some other stressor that has caused them to relapse. And so um, we think that in the end, there'll be some sort of a limit, and people for PTSD will not ever get MDMA more than like 10 times in their whole life. But mm-hmm. for most people, we think three times will work. But again, it's MDMA-assisted psychotherapy with the emphasis on psychotherapy. So the MDMA is embedded in a long-term trusting therapeutic relationship, and that's what really gives it the healing power. 
Now, Rick, I'm imagining someone who's listening who says, you know, I can't wait till 2021. I have a type of trauma that has been resistant to traditional approaches. I'm ready to get going. This conversation has been so exciting for me. And, you know, I I have a sense there's something I need that MDMA could help me with in my healing. What would be your guidelines for such a person who's ready to go rogue? Well, first off, I would say we're about to start phase three in August next month. So if you go to the MAPS website under participate and you sign up on our email list, there's a checkbox once you get to putting in your email where you can say, I want to be notified when the studies start. And so we have over 20,000 people on that list, sadly. But um, but I'd say sign up for that. Maybe you could get into one of the- I was with studies. you until you told me, to, you, I was with you until you told me I would be the 20,000 and first person. And, and then I felt a little- Yeah. Well, that's very true. The other thing, okay. So somebody came up to me at Burning Man last year and they said, uh, you saved my life. And I said, how did I do it? You know, what happened? And they said, well, you have your treatment manual. So we have a manualized psychotherapy, standardized psychotherapy. And we have developed that. We've described it in a treatment manual that we've put up on our website, on the MDMA research page. And this guy said, you know, I was a vet. I had PTSD. I read your treatment manual. I found a friend. I found some MDMA. And I took it. And now I feel better. Um, there are people that can heal themselves in that way if they establish kind of a trusting relationship with their friend. But you never know, are you getting pure MDMA um, or not? There is one place in the United States that's licensed by the DEA called Drug Detection Lab, and they can accept anonymous samples of drugs and analyze them. It's like 125 bucks, and you can find out what's in whatever pill or capsule or whatever you've got. Um, but again, I would say to people that, um, it's a difficult situation you're in. Uh, I'll say this, um, years ago, 10 years ago, somebody called me up and he said, I, he was your hypothetical person that you just described, you know, mm-hmm. I've got terrible feelings. I, I need underground therapy. And, um, I referred him to a therapist that did not do underground work that I thought was great. And he worked with that therapist for three or four months. Then he called me back and he said, um, you know, it's, it's working, but not enough. I still want underground therapy. And the more we talked, he explained that he had had epilepsy. He'd had seizures at different times of his life. And it's possible, although it's very rare, that MDMA or classic psychedelics could trigger a seizure. So I said, I don't think you're appropriate. You know, I, I can't really help you. Um, and then I didn't hear anything for three months. And then I got a call from the police in his hometown. And they say, did you know this person? And I said, yeah, he called me up. He wanted therapy and I couldn't refer him to anybody. And, um, and that's the last I heard of him. And the police said, well, he's committed suicide and he's left you a suicide note. And it turned out that he committed suicide the very next day after I said I couldn't refer him to an underground therapist. It just took police three months to call me. And the suicide note was beautiful. It was, he said, I don't blame you. I blame the system of prohibition. You can use this note. You can tell people about it. I might have been one person saved if um, psychedelic therapy was legal. So I recognize that there are people, you know, you started out earlier. We talked about someone who went for psychedelics and then committed suicide. There are people who commit suicide because they can't get psychedelics. So it's a difficult situation. And the most important thing 
is a safe context to explore difficult emotions with friends, with therapists, with any kind of safe context, family members. Um, it, it's a difficult, tragic situation. And, and every day, um, people ask us for therapy. And we just are saying we're trying to do this as fast as we can to make it into a legal prescription medicine. Um, but until we do, people face these very difficult choices. One of the parts of your work, Rick, that got my attention is something you call the Zendo Project, ah, where right. you you help people who are going through a difficult journey while having ingested a psychedelic work through whatever's come up for them. And you set up the Zendo Project at various festivals or events. And so I wonder if you can talk some about that and how you train volunteers to help you with the Zendo project. Okay. Yeah. Great question. Thank you for that. Um, well, you know, I became aware of psychedelics in 1971 when I, the full story, when I first started taking LSD in 71, 72, and I started to understand their therapeutic potential at a point in time where the backlash had already happened. And I learned about MDMA in 1982 when it was both an underground therapy drug under the name Adam and also a popular recreational drug or increasingly popular under the name ecstasy. So I learned about MDMA before the backlash. And that's why I got politically involved and, and so deeply involved with MDMA. But now, as we are in this psychedelic renaissance and we're moving into phase three studies, um, or, and even before when we were first starting this work with phase two with patients, I started thinking what are the causes of backlash and how can we avoid them? And the cause of the backlash in the 60s was really the connection between psychedelics and the counterculture. The way in which a lot of people use psychedelics, um, had kind of unit of mystical experiences, had other experiences, and then thought, well, why do I want to go kill people in Vietnam? They're not that different from me. What's, you know, what are the real reasons? that we're trying to do this so that psychedelics got wrapped up into the counterculture, got connected up with the environmental movement, with the women's rights movement, even the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and the culture reacted in a way and um, shut things down for decades and decades. Um, but now I think that that connection between psychedelics and the counterculture is no longer really prevalent. I mean, we have so many people that took psychedelics in the 60s and didn't go live on a commune that, you know, lived fully in society, had families, had jobs, you know, did great. And we, we think of uh, Steve Jobs as someone who said the LSD was one of the most important things he ever did and, you know, started the wealthiest, uh, you know, richest company in the world, Apple Computer. So the reason for backlash now would be parents worried about their kids. And a lot of young people do use psychedelics at festivals. And so I started thinking if we could provide safe, supportive environment for people that take psychedelics in a recreational context, not only kids, but mostly young people, and help them through the difficult spots so that they don't need to go to the emergency rooms, they don't need to get tranquilized, or they don't need to come in contact with the police and get arrested. That if we can take these um, people having difficult psychedelic experiences and in a safe, supportive environment, help them learn from them 
and grow from them, that would be one of the most important things that we can do to prevent a backlash. So we started actually in 2000 uh, reaching out to Burning Man and saying, I want to bring multiple people, um, therapists to help. And Burning Man um, reacted negatively. And they said, no way, we don't want that because that means we would acknowledge that psychedelics are being used. And we're worried that the police would use harm reduction as a sign that we know psychedelics are used and then would try to shut us down. So it didn't, it didn't work until 2003 that Burning Man said yes. And in 2001, though, we started our first uh, harm reduction psychedelic uh, project at uh, Hookerville uh, in, um, in Michigan. Um, and later, um, we started working at Boom Festival in Portugal, where drugs are legal. Uh, they're decriminalized in Portugal, so that they could be out front about the psychedelic harm reduction. So Burning Man is doing great now. Um, we've treated over 4,000 people from the Zendo project. Burning Man is now comfortable. Uh, last year, we treated um, in one year um, roughly 670 people. And everybody at Burning Man got a flyer to say that we were there, the Zendo project was there. Um, and so what we have been able to demonstrate is a successful harm reduction model. And the way we train the therapists is by teaching basically four key principles. Um, you know, we try to have people who are already trained as therapists, but we'll work with people who are not therapists who have had substantial experience of their own with psychedelics and know what it's like to face difficult things. Uh, and so the first principle of the Zendo project is create a safe space. And what that means is that it can be physically safe. You're out of the commotion, but it's really the human relationship. Whoever is there with you. So we, we had uh, 900 people roughly apply to volunteer at the Zendo project at Burning Man. And we selected about 260 of them. And they, we staff a facility 24 seven for, uh, you know, for the whole week of Burning Man. And so the first thing is create a safe space, help people feel, that they're not going to be arrested, they're not going to be taken away, that they're not going to be attacked, that their their attention is directed inward into what's happening with them. And so they are, in a sense, in a real genuine sense, defenseless from people from the outside. So you have to protect them and help them feel safe. And also that means that they're safe with the emotional content, that you're not reactive yourself. If they start talking about a rape and you've been raped and you don't want to think about it and they start talking about it and then you are like, you know, don't go there or you communicate your own anxieties. That's part of, um, you know, not creating a safe space. So you create a safe space. Once you've done that and we teach about all the different ways that you do that, we have medical supervision also to check people out to make sure they're not having physical problems. Uh, then the next thing is that we teach it's called sitting, not guiding. And the key aspect of that is that we are not the guide that we, meaning the, the people sitting with, uh, with the, the therapist, the, the support people, that the guide is the person's own unconscious. And things emerge in a way that is unique to each individual. And our job is to help people process that but not to direct that. We don't know the goal. We don't know where they need to be. We don't know what they need to feel. We don't know the order that we just are supporting. So we are sitting in kind of a meditative way um, with people, 
and then roughly, you know, a lot of times people have their eyes closed listening to music, going inward, but when they come out and they want to talk, then we will sort of sit with them and help them process whatever they're processing. So it's a key aspect of the attitude of the, the sitters that, that they're not... The, it's arrogant in a way to say you're the guide and you know where people need to go. It's not like being a wilderness guide where you've been on the trails before and the mountain is an exterior mountain. These are interior mountains of people's unconscious and their own history. And the symbols mean different things to different people. So sitting, not guiding. And then the other third part that we teach, it's called talk through, not talk down. And what that means basically is that you don't try to distract people to talk them down from what they're feeling. Like, okay, you're on a drug. It's going to get over in a few hours. You know, think about things that are beautiful. Here's a flower. You know, think about this. Think about that. You know, don't worry about the trauma that you're trying to tell us. That's only in the past, you know. So we don't talk people down. We're not trying to take people away from their experience. We're trying to help them face it and look at it. And so we talk through. So it's, you know, what is it that's scaring you? You know, you see a vision of a skull, you know, tell me about it. You know, what's behind that? You know, accept that. You feel that you're dying. Well, okay, you're not physically dying. We have medical staff here, but it's like an ego death or emotional death. Let it happen. Go through it. You know, these fears that are coming up that you don't want to face, you're better off facing them because they influence your life even more when they're unconscious than when they're conscious. So we try to direct people's attention towards what they're worried about rather than talk them down. And then the fourth principle, um, which in some ways I think is the most important to help people really frame this in their own minds is that difficult is not the same as bad. Many people are trained that where they believe that once things start getting difficult, once a psychedelic trip starts getting difficult, then they're going to have what we all know is called a bad trip. And what makes a bad trip bad is not the content, but it's the resistance to the content. It's the unwillingness to explore it and to feel it. I mean, one time when I was having a terrible LSD trip early on in my uh, teenage, late teenage years, I, I was so resisting the feelings that I felt like my brain was like um, an electric wire, but that things were blocked and my brain was just heating up and it was going to be melting because of the resistance. And I actually felt like a nasal drip and I thought, oh, my brain is coming out of my nose. It was terrible. So it's the resistance that's the problem. And so when we say difficult is not the same as bad, what that means is this may be painful. This may be um, very, very difficult. Some of uh, the PTSD patients have said, I don't know why they call this ecstasy because they're actually releasing the trauma. They're experiencing a lot of the trauma for the first time because they had to shut down when it was happening and focus on survival. So once people understand that it's okay to have a difficult experience, there's a way to emerge from it stronger, then I think people are really fully ready to um, work through difficult experiences. And then that's the key. Those are the key four elements that we train people in. You know, we, we do um, play acting, role play, all sorts of things to, you know, turn this into um, longer training. Sometimes we have two day trainings at Burning Man. We have a, like a three, four hour training. Um, it all depends. But 
I think the Zendo project is something that we're extremely proud of, but it's very sadly limited by the fear of uh, concert promoters, festival organizers, that harm reduction methods will be used against them. And I think that's slowly changing, but that's what, from a policy point of view, um, when uh, Biden was um, a senator before he was vice president, he passed what's called the RABE Act, uh, reducing America's vulnerability to ecstasy. And it had the unintended consequence of giving the impression that harm reduction methods were criminalized. But we are now seeing in America a broader acceptance of needle exchange. There's even going to be safe injection rooms to avoid overdose deaths in certain cities of America. So I think harm reduction is becoming more accepted, but it's still controversial and needs a long way to go. Rick, just a couple of more things I want to sneak in here before we close our conversation. I know that one of your strategies at MAPS is to have a big coming out at some point of very successful people, celebrities, people who are willing to stand and say, psychedelics have been important in my life and my journey. And I want to say that come out of the closet. Where are you at with this big psychedelic coming out party? Can you release some of the names? When's it going to happen? Um, well, that's um, th- there was one extremely prominent person that said that he would come out with a thousand people. This was um, maybe six years ago. Um, and then maybe three years ago, two, three years ago, he said he'd come out with a hundred people. <laughs> so we still don't have that list of people that are all willing to come out together. Um, But I guess I would ask uh, you and the listeners to think about when we look at the gay rights movement um, and what has been so successful about that. Now, we, of course, with the new Supreme Court people, we may have a rollback of that. But what I think really propelled them into the progress that they've made was coming out, was people saying, you don't know uh, my sexual orientation, but you know me for what I've done in the world and you value that and now I'm gay, I'm homosexual. Uh, And that's changed people's attitudes. So I think the coming out model that we're talking about with psychedelics, we're not quite there yet, ready to release a whole group of names, but there are more and more people over time that are willing to to do that. But I I guess um, I'd ask everybody to just think about what they imagine to be the risks of them doing so for those of uh, your listeners that actually have had these beneficial experiences with psychedelics. And maybe the more you think about it, maybe you can come out to your family if you haven't already or to friends or in increasingly public ways, because I think that coming out is going to be absolutely essential for social transformation. And one of the beauties of doing clinical research is that we have now an increasing body of people that have had these profoundly healing experiences in a legal context. And so they don't have to be so worried about coming out, but it it will take people willing to take risks in doing so. And so I I wish I could release the list right now, um, but we're working on it. And hopefully in the next year or two, we'll be able to have that kind of uh, New York times full page ad 
with all these people saying, you know, I benefited from psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Now, Rick, I want to circle back to something we talked about in the very beginning of our conversation, this idea you mentioned from Ramdas, when you mm-hmm. picked up the phone, once you've got the message, go ahead, hang up the phone and do the slow work of meditation, psychotherapy, chanting, spiritual practice. You've had this profound glimpse through a psychedelic, but now in order to create change that will be sustainable, to work the muscle of your own inner life. And in my own experience, and this gives me a chance to come out once again in yet another way to the Sounds True audience, I had very profound experiences, you know, under a handful when I was a young person with psychedelics. They were extremely formative for me, informative, breakthrough, gave me some big initial mystical insights. But then I had the experience of, I think I got the message. Now I'm going to dedicate myself in a different way to a slow type of gradual transformation process throughout the rest of my life. And I notice when I think about psychedelics now in my life, I have a sense of being quite sensitive. Like it doesn't take much for me to feel very, 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 very deeply in a big expanded way. So I haven't been drawn to it. And yet when I heard what you said, you know, Albert Hoffman said once a decade, it brings me to this question. How does somebody know? I think, I think I'm ready for another psychedelic infusion in my life or not. Maybe I'm in a place where I feel kind of fragile or I just am a sensitive soul and that's not what's needed. Well, um, yeah, how do you know what your inner voice is telling you to do and whether that's really a good advice or not? Um, I think, again, uh, well, let me tell you first off about a research project that I think is one of the most important going on in the world right now with psychedelics. And so there's, in the Zen tradition, there's a lot of people who um, have a story similar to what, to what you just shared. Early experiences with psychedelics, and then they decided to get involved with meditation. And you know, a subgroup of these people were involved with Zen meditation. So in Switzerland, there's now a study that is taking lifelong Zen meditators, whether they began with psychedelics and then gave them up or whether they never did psychedelics, but these are now taking lifelong Zen meditators in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, some even a little bit older, and taking them to a Zen meditation retreat at a um, Zendo called Fell Center in uh, Lucerne, Switzerland. And they actually go to the University of Zurich for brain scans before and after this like five or six day meditation retreat. And during the middle of the meditation retreat, they get a pill and it's either a psilocybin or placebo. And then this is, there's a crossover months and months later. So everybody who, you know, got the placebo gets the psilocybin. Um, And what they're finding is that even these lifelong meditators who thought that they had gotten the message either from psychedelics or from some other way when they were young, that there's new progress that they're able to make as a result of the psilocybin and that they can actually learn to deepen their meditation practice even when they're 
you know, lifelong meditators with just one more psilocybin experience later on in their lives. So I think we are seeing within the Zen tradition, which has been fairly anti-drug as intoxication, that there's a growing acceptance of blending occasional psychedelic experiences with lifelong meditation and that people are reporting that they're able to make progress in their meditation practice. So I I would say to people that um, it's an individual decision. There's no right answer. It's just, are you drawn to this? Is it worth your, uh, are you curious about exploring it? You know, maybe because you're different, you're not the same person as you were when you had your early formative LSD experiences. You've had so much life experience Plus, you're now looking at death in a different way from a different perspective and what you want to accomplish. And so I, I, I don't think there's a right answer for people, but I think that um, more and more we're starting to see that there are more than one message that people get and that it can make sense to try psychedelics again at later in your life. But it's very important to take time out from your life. You know, Tim, you talked about being very sensitive. So it's not something to think about as, oh, I'm going to just uh, trip over the weekend and then, you know, I'll go back to work on Monday and everything will be fine. I mean, when I think about doing a large dose of LST, I think about it as a five-day experience to give yourself time to really take yourself apart and to slowly, slowly put yourself back together again in a new way. So I think the older we get, in a way, the more time we need to give ourselves for the integration process, the more that we have to deal with. And um, I I would just encourage people to, if they are called in that direction, to really just explore whether they can, you know, assure themselves that they have pure drugs and a safe place and give themselves enough time. And for some people, it'll be worth it. And other people will say, ah, you know, I learned it before. It really wasn't worth it. and I think that will be um, a valid, you know, conclusion for some people. And other people will say, wow, I, you know, it, it started a new chapter in my life. Rick, if we're part of a psychedelic renaissance right now, you're at the vanguard. Thank you so much <laughs> for being with us here um, on Insights at the Edge. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for helping us uh, share and educate lots more people. I really appreciate it. And if people want to connect with you, what's the best way and with MAPS? Um, well, um, MAPS, M-A-P-S dot org. Uh, we are a nonprofit organization, so we're looking to increase our membership. So, you know, we're, we're funded entirely by no- donations. There are no investors. And even though some people give millions of dollars, some people give $10 or $20 or $30 and everything is worth it. And then... Um, you know, there's places on the website for people to send in um, emails, ask maps at maps.org, and we will try to respond to every single one of them. And so we just encourage people to get in touch and to think about um, taking an active role and being part of the psychedelic renaissance um, and become, consider becoming a MAPS member. We have newsletters, bulletins that we mail to people, things like that. But, but I'd say the most important thing is for people to become informed. To, to really understand what's going on and then to the extent that people want you to come out to those uh, close and close and ever farther away from them so that we you know, create a 
an opening in this culture that really can um, sustain the movement towards psychedelic medicine and then eventually psychedelic spirituality and then eventually towards uh, a post-prohibition world. I've been speaking with Rick Doblin, the founder and executive director of MAP, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Rick, thank you so much for being a guest on Insights at the Edge. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Susanna. Great. Bye. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world. <laughs>